Some bonds last a lifetime. Some bonds inspire confidence. And some you grow to rely on. These are the bonds worth investing in. For nearly 50 years, PIMCO has reinvented fixed income to create opportunities for investors in every market environment. So no matter what happens, you can build the bonds that mean the most to you. PIMCO, a global leader in active fixed income. Learn more at PIMCO.com bonds. All investments contain risk and may lose value. Consult your investment professional before investing. My mission is simple, to make you money. I'm here to level the playing field for all investors. There's always a bull market somewhere, and I promise to help you find it. Mad Money starts now. Welcome to Mad Money. Welcome to Kramerica. And welcome to the West Coast of Kramerica. I'm coming to you from San Francisco, the heart of the tech revolution and home of some prime money-making opportunities. Other people want to make friends, but I'm out of here in California to help you make some money. Because my job's not just to entertain, but then educate and teach you. So call me at 1-800-743-CBC or tweet me at Jim Kramer. Embrace technology or Die. People always ask me why the money team spends so much time out here in San Francisco. And the answer is pretty simple, frankly. If you want your business to survive in the 21st century, you need better tech. Tech that individualizes. Tech that tells the story. Tech that keeps you current. Tech that makes your customers happy. After today's day, with the Dow gained 31 points, S&P inched up 0.05%. NASDAQ advanced 0.11%. I think you need to understand that we come out here basically to give technology its due. Tech is how good businesses become great ones. It's how they take themselves to the next level. And I want to show you how that works. Take tonight. We're going to the Levi's Innovation Factory in San Francisco Marina District, where this 166-year-old company has reinvented the way jeans are made. Later in the show, you'll hear from CEO Chip Berg, who was faced, I think, with an existential dilemma. How do you make classic genes without classic despoliation of the earth? In the old days, you could finish genes using massive amounts of water. You didn't really care I, I worry where the indigo went, right? Those days, those days are gone. You know what else is gone? The era when manufacturers tell you what you want. Now you tell them what you want. Now Levi's no longer needs to make millions of pairs of pants that are destined for landfills whenever there's just too much inventory. With technology, the consumer can create what she wants when she wants it, something that's terrific for both sides as well as the ultimate stakeholder, which is the earth. Levi's needs to make jeans that look vintage, but they have to do it in a way that millennials know is fair to the workers, sustainable for the environment. So they engineered new technology to rebut the presumption of sweatshops and ecological damage that so many people seem to think they are still doing. Now, Levi's uses lasers, special washing machines to save billions of gallons of water and keeps the indigo from bleeding to the water table while maintaining a workforce of seamstresses who've been with the company for ages. Plus, this whole process gives you a better made pair of pants. In such a shorter time period. But not every business needs to develop its own tech. You can outsource. You can outsource most of this stuff, as a matter of fact. You remember we see these, sticker, these stocks on the ticker crawl beneath the screen, you know, down here, like underneath me? Well, uh, in many cases, our eyes glaze over when they see them. I mean, do you really need to know what a software as a service play like Zendesk does? The answer is you bet you do. 
Bye, bye, bye. Well, you have to. Because it's an enterprise trying to sell something needs Zendesk. The platform is essential to boosting your sales for the likes of Netflix, Procter & Gamble. Hey, Harry's, as you'll hear from Zendesk CEO later tonight. How do companies reach the younger generation that's no longer willing to sit through television ads and maybe through social media? And that's why we're talking to Twitter, as we always do when we come out here. And if you really want to get a read on the future of an entire industry, you can't just rely on public companies. You need to speak to the fast-growing, privately-held players that are taking the world by storm like Airbnb has done to the lodging business. Here's a company that's found a way to house everyone at the next Olympics in Tokyo, from spectators to refugee athletes, something the hotel chains are very ill-equipped to do. When you focus on the technology that's changing the world, it reminds you that when tech stocks go down, they're not necessarily out. Look, just look at two major semiconductor companies that got hit hard when they reported in the last few weeks, Advanced Micro Devices and NVIDIA. At the time, I told you to hold your nose and buy both of them right into the weakness. Because in reality, I said they hadn't done anything wrong. The stocks were reacting to the charts, to the uh, chatter, to the oh-so-slight revisions on one or two lines of gibberish that control absolutely nothing. I wasn't worried about AMD or NVIDIA. Why? Because I came out here regularly, so I know how indispensable their chips have become to the modern world. That's what you discover when you're here. Sure enough, both AMD and NVIDIA have made spectacular comebacks. Why? Well, let's circle back to Levi's. What does Levi's want to do aside from officially making eco-friendly jeans? Levi's wants your data so they can do a better job of figuring out what you want and then sell it to you at your price, just the way you want it. These days, everyone wants your data for the same reason. Whether we're talking about music or television or clothes or food or games or newspaper articles, cars, cell phones, anything. And if you want to put that data to work, chances are you need chips from NVIDIA or AMD. In that case, it's crazy to sell these stocks when they report good quarters with a tiny bit of irrelevant hair on them. Nobody will remember that fly in the ointment a week later or even, frankly, with NVIDIA a day later. And that's why AMD could rally more than 3% today while NVIDIA surged nearly 4%. Consider NVIDIA for what it is, the best way to generate images and inferences that allow businesses to get better at uh, business. If they chose to shun NVIDIA for their data centers, they're going to fall behind the competition. Let me put it this way so you'll understand. During the next sell-off that creates a buying opportunity in these stocks like we had last week, by coming out to San Francisco, I learned which tech companies deserve the benefit of the doubt. I know NVIDIA is developing semiconductors that power the data center and machine learning and artificial intelligence. Their chips are in devices that can simulate a cockpit or measure a self-driving car's ability to avoid collisions. They're in computers that can answer your questions and understand idiomatic speech. Their graphics chips can make photorealistic characters in a video game. You can't tell them. You cannot tell the difference for the real thing. I know. I've looked at it. That said, I'm not going to be waiving the right to be skeptical. You'll see CEOs of companies that you might own shares in, and sometimes you'll wonder if it is a good idea. But the bottom line is, I need to expose you to as much of the world of technology as possible. You know why? Because it's technology that powers so much of your daily life and the choices you make or don't make. The thing is, I wouldn't know the difference between NVIDIA the company and, yes, NVIDIA the dog. If we didn't regularly make our way out here, it would just be another piece of paper or a piece of plastic. When you only look at the world through that lens, you end up with missing way too many buying opportunities. 
Oh, man, buddy, tonight from CBC, one market in San Francisco. Twitter's wings have been clipped over the past few months, but can the company find a way to fly higher? I'm talking with the company's top executives to see what's happening. Then, innovation extends beyond just tech companies. Tonight, I'm sitting down with the 166-year-old Levi's at the company's innovation lab to see how it's reinventing denim. And approximately six guests check in to an Airbnb listing every second. Tonight, I'm sitting down with the CEO to talk about the company's potential plans to come all black. So stay with Kramer. Don't miss a second of Mad Money. Follow at Jim Kramer on Twitter. Have a question? Tweet Kramer. Hashtag Mad Tweets. Send Jim an email to madmoney at CNBC.com or give us a call at 1-800-743-CNBC. Miss something? Head to madmoney.cnbc.com. Some bonds last a lifetime. Some bonds inspire confidence. And some you grow to rely on. These are the bonds worth investing in. For nearly 50 years, PIMCO has reinvented fixed income to create opportunities for investors in every market environment. So no matter what happens, you can build the bonds that mean the most to you. PIMCO, a global leader in active fixed income. Learn more at PIMCO.com bonds. All investments contain risk and may lose value. Consult your investment professional before investing. While we're out in San Francisco, we need to check in on a major Silicon Valley player with a stock that's gone from love to low there, matter of months, Twitter. Not long ago, this stock was on fire, but it's now down more than 35% from its highs, most of the damage coming after what many analysts thought was a disappointing quarter last month. After this bruising, is Twitter worth owning? Every time the company stumbled the past, it served to be a terrific buying opportunity, which is why we have embraced the stock here. So let's check in with Ned Siegel. He's the CFO of Twitter. Mr. Siegel, welcome back to Mad Money. Ned, I want to try to figure out how you divide your time. You've got customers, okay. You've got all of this news constantly about what kind of ads you'll take and what you won't take. And then you've got some technology issues that you weren't happy about last quarter. Could you just go through your day and tell me how you deal with being the, you know, the guy who's running the CFO of Twitter at a time when it's a little tough on Twitter? Well, remember, we have 4,600 people at the company. Okay. And we've got a bunch of priorities. And we try to stay really focused around them. The first one is growing the audience. We're a purpose-driven company. We want the whole world to use Twitter. We grew our audience 17% last quarter. We're so thrilled with the product momentum that's driving that. That's where we start. Uh, We also think about our revenue products. We had some challenges there this past quarter. They point to the strategy that we've laid out, though, which is we know we need to rebuild our ad server to allow us to move faster. We know we need mobile application promotion ads to deliver better for advertisers, and that that can lead to more direct response opportunities over time. Although some of it did catch up with us in the third quarter, we have conviction that those are the right priorities and that they'll help us over time. Did you underspend? Well, that's an interesting question. You know, we grew headcount 16% last year. We were growing at about 20% this year. We're trying to be really thoughtful as we grow the team to make sure that we keep the quality bar really high, that we don't take on too many priorities at the same time, because when we look at the success that we've been able to deliver since Jack returned to the company four years ago, it's been about being really selective and deliberate about our priorities. When your stock was at this level a few years ago, uh, 
I know Mark Benioff was interested in buying it. At one point, Disney was interested in buying it. Then the stock cratered. They all walked away. Uh, then the stock turned, uh, turned around. Are you uh, worried that someone's actually going to try to swoop you up? Because I don't think that's your intent. What we're worried about is getting the whole world to use the service. We look at all the great things happening on Twitter, whether it's around the Eagles or something happening here in San Francisco, like the Niners game yesterday, a political event, or something very local in nature uh, in another part of the world. These are great things that bring people together, that people want to discuss, where there may be different perspectives, and you can learn about them in a social and personalized and real-time way on Twitter, and that's what we're focused on. Okay, well, you see what I, I wanted to show you. What I have. I've got my direct message where I mentioned this morning, going back and forth with John Ledger. That's how I communicate with him while he's on. He's the uh, outgoing CEO of T-Mobile. It's a way to do it. I obviously follow the president, who's right now talking about the Dow NASDAQ record close, showing a picture of CNBC. Uh, I follow Adam Schefter, of course. I, these are all my rituals, right? How do you get people to have the same rituals that I do? Because I don't understand why everyone doesn't have it on every minute. Because if, And I know if they did, you'd make a lot more money. Well, I'm glad you say that. And you are a great example of what somebody looks like when they use Twitter properly. You also tweet a lot, and you've got over a million people who right. follow you. So we want people to follow the topics and events that they care about most. That's what people come to Twitter for. Right. We're increasingly organizing the product, not just around the accounts that people follow, but around the topics and events. I don't know if you've had a prompt yet, but I've been asked, do I want to follow the Warriors? Do I want to follow the NFL? And that makes it so that I don't have to choose which accounts I want to follow. I just say the topics I want to follow. The experiences around those events are getting so much better as we improve relevance as we improve the notifications, as we improve the performance no. of the app. And on this, definitely. On this, it's really great. Mm-hmm. Okay, so you got to lose. I want to follow politics. I don't mind seeing political ads. I feel that this is the battle of ideas. That uh, Oliver Wendell Holmes said it. You best, the best truth is the power of the thought to get itself accepted in the competition of the market. Why limit the competition? Well, we don't disagree with that thesis, but we feel that a voice around a political campaign, around a political issue, ought to be earned and not bought on Twitter. And it really is that simple to us. If you look at the policy that we detailed on Friday, right. that will begin to enforce this Friday, that Jack first tweeted about a few weeks ago, it just comes back to that basic principle. Now, I know I was listening to Walter Isaacson, he's much smarter than I am. I used to work for him. And he is saying, well, listen, what's bad is targeted ads for people who may not, uh, who may be ignorant of other issues. I'm going to use that as a pejorative word. If you ad- ran the ad everywhere, then it's not targeted. Maybe you just sticker it saying, listen, this is an ad we haven't vetted. Isn't that enough? Well, we are limiting targeting, so you won't be able to target it, uh, okay. more deeply than by a state which will make sure that if you have a message that you want to get out that you, around an issue, it may still be allowed, but you won't be able to do micro-targeting. In the end, we want people it's to very talk. very good. We, want, we think it is good, too. We want people to be able to talk about these issues. We want people to see different perspectives. We want them to feel safe being a part of the conversation. We want them to trust the information that they see. And we, th- we believe that we'll do a better job of that if you earn your voice as opposed to buying it. Okay, so uh, last week the president is uh, tweeting about someone who's actually testifying, kind of uh, making fun of her. Now, I, li- I don't like to look at a train wreck, but I know people are drawn to train wrecks, okay? I know people are drawn to access. I know people are drawn to big events, uh, bloopers in a baseball game. Uh, what do you do about an actual president of the United States who is doing something that you and I might not want to do? Maybe we think it's unbecoming, but we want to watch it. Well, we have a rule around um, political figures which says that uh, they may tweet something that somebody else would tweet that 
is against our policies and we might leave the tweet up but we might limit its amplification and we might cover it with what's called an interstitial. So you might have to click through to see it. And we'd tell you why it violated our rules and we'd tell you that we left it up because we believe it's in the, the public interest to know right. what our elected officials or people who are running for office are saying. Even if it might be something that could be perceived to be objectionable by one person or another, we think it's important that it's there for people to see. Okay, so Ned, you know that I recently went out after waiting and said the stock's got to be bought because it's just the franchise is ridiculously undervalued. The franchise. Not talking about the quarter to quarter because you have been very, you've been very honest. You've said you, you have to make these changes. At what point have the changes come to the point where it, the revenue is going to flow to the bottom line? Because a lot of things you're discussing, they cost a lot of money. They don't make any money. Well, we think we've got lots of opportunity in front of us. When we look at the 17% DAU growth, it's critical to start there. Remember, 18% growth internationally, 13% growth in the U.S., so it's broad-based. But why didn't people figure, uh, focus on that? Why did they focus on other metrics that, that you and I felt were not as important? Well, I think that's part of the accountability of being a public company is sometimes people focus on things um, that you wish had gone better. And these issues that we faced on our revenue products this quarter are things that are critical for us. But did the consumer package good companies? Did anyone say, listen, let me come back when you figure it out? Uh, Sometimes companies say, we're going to wait to run more ads until we understand better how the measurement's going to work. And other times people say advertising on Twitter is on sale because somebody else made a decision right. to walk away. But, and so it's really a combination of different responses that we got from advertisers. Most okay. importantly, though, what we're hearing from them is they know we are the place to launch a new product and service. Still is. New movie, Bob Iger? Absolutely. If you're Warner Brothers and you put the Joker trailer up on all the services all at the same time, it was seen twice as many times on Twitter the first hour than anywhere else. If you're launching a over-the-top television pro, uh, uh, app. Right. We are the place where opinion gets formed about it, and you want to be there to talk about it and to help people learn about your service. Uh, same thing with connecting with what's happening, right. whether it's a sporting event yep. or a political event or something else. We are the place where people go when they want to connect with the things that their customers care about and are talking about on Twitter. Couldn't agree more. That's Ned Seelis, the CFO of Twitter, who does go back and forth with me. He knows that I'm an active user and has made good changes that I know I've requested to make it a more polite and better place. Thank you so much, Ned. Good to see you. The goal? Explain the 1990s in exactly 60 songs. Tupac, Warren Hill, You Oughta Know, Cream. The greater goal? Move past cheap nostalgia to something deeper and weirder and better. My name is Rob Harvilla. I'm a music critic at The Ringer. And whether you're full of teenage angst or you feel bored and old, whether you don't know the song at all or you know it far too well, my new show will take you through the decade one song at a time. It's 60 songs that explain the 90s. Follow and listen for free on Spotify. Believe it or not, you can teach an old dog new tricks. We tend to think of innovation as something that mostly happens at technology companies. But any business can innovate if it's willing to put in the work, as I said at the top of the show. So consider the case of Levi Strauss and Company, the 166-year-old apparel company best known for its jeans. These guys have developed a whole new technology to automate the labor-intensive process of hand finishing jeans. Instead of humans working with thousands of chemicals, they use machines with lasers to get it done up to 20 times faster. Hey, and without those nasty chemicals, so call me intrigued. Earlier today, we sat down with Chip Berg. He's the president and CEO of Levi Strauss & Company at the company's Eureka 
Innovation Lab here in San Francisco, where they came up with this new technology. So take a look. Chip, I feel like I'm having a Eureka moment. Eureka. Am I right? You are right. Welcome to Eureka, Jim. So describe to us what Eureka means, because to me it might be heart and soul of the new Levi's. It is. Well, um, when I joined the company back in 2011, um, one of the things that I really believe in is the importance of innovation. We had a small innovation center in Turkey at the time, which was planes, trains, and automobiles to get there. And we decided to move that innovation center and scale it up and put it right here, right down the street. We're a couple of blocks from our headquarters. Innovation in the apparel industry, as you'll see, because we'll walk around a little bit, it's, it's tactile and it's iterative. And being close to the designers and close to the merchants who were working on our future lines and working on innovation, that proximity was really important. I thought to myself, here we are. At that time, I used to say, we're at the northern tip of Silicon Valley. How do we attract all the Silicon Valley talent and innovation to work with Levi's? They're not going to do it if they have to go all the way to Turkey. So by putting this uh, innovation center here, and we named it Eureka, we opened it in 2013, and a number of amazing innovations have come out of it. It's also one of the highest performing teams we've got in our company. It's a great team here. So when we speak about innovation, how much of it is, I've noticed, uh an increasing DTC personalization that makes it so there's a giant moat around Levi's that the other guys don't have. Yeah, so personalization is obviously personalization and customization is a huge consumer trend. Um, it's, it also creates theater in our store. Theater? Direct, yeah, theater. You know, consumers want to come into the store and they want an experience. They don't want to just come in. If, they, if they're yeah. just going to come in and transact, they can do that online. But they right. want to come into a store and have an experience, something that's unique, something that's Instagrammable. And we've got tailor shops in most of our mainline stores around the world where we do personalization and customization. Uh, consumers can tailor a trucker jacket, customize a trucker jacket for themselves. We offer tailor-made Levi's in a couple of our main flagships around the world where you can get bespoke tailored Levi's. Um, we also have this technology using lasers where consumers now, even online, can design their own pair of Levi's, which we will finish on a laser, which you'll see later now, this morning. Uh, you have, you mentioned in Europe, the numbers in Europe are extraordinary. Can you replicate those numbers here, and why is it so strong over there? So Europe's been growing now for about four years. Last two fiscal years, we were up 20%. Each of those two fiscal years, we're up 14% fiscal year to date through three quarters. Um, the business in Europe skews towards direct-to-consumer. It's about 50% DTC, 50% wholesale. The U.S. skews much more dominantly to wholesale, less today okay. than it did eight years ago when I joined. But, um, you know, the brand is just absolutely on fire, really on a global basis. Our DTC right. business is growing high single digits here in the U.S. We're just challenged with U.S. wholesale well, right Japan, now. One of the things that did worry me about is, is the notion of wholesale. Because in wholesale or in a major department store, brick and mortar, I don't get the sense of sustainability. I don't get the sense of theater. But I also know the importance of outlets. How do you balance those? Yeah, it's, it is a balancing act. We talk about the U.S. market as a marketplace, and we need to manage it as a marketplace. U.S. wholesale is an important component of it. When I joined the company, almost half of the company's total business was in U.S. wholesale. And 
our strategy has been effectively to diversify the business. Right. And today, U.S. wholesale is less than 30% of our total global business, but it's still a very big, very profitable, important part of our business. But we have been diversifying, building more direct-to-consumer, more e-commerce business, more of our own stores here in the U.S. so that we can manage the business as a marketplace. At the same time, we've also been expanding distribution in wholesale. Okay. Given the strength of the brand, we right. can premiumize the brand, move up to higher tier wholesale customers like Nordstrom, Bloomingdale's, which we've done successfully over the last couple of okay, years. Okay, so what kind of innovation in manufacturing you demonstrate? So part of the reason this facility exists is, uh, is to drive innovation around sustainability and manufacturing. Okay. Um, I, I personally believe that the best innovation happens when you've got constraints. You know, completely unconstrained, you know, an innovation organization can just get lost in the weeds. Right. But when you say, we want to focus on driving innovation in sustainability, we want to get rid of hazardous chemicals, right. we want to reduce the amount of hard physical labor that goes into making a pair of jeans, um, we want to use less water, you know, one, right. the, the most precious resource in the world today, and, and this industry uses a lot of water. So out of this facility has come innovations like uh, waterless, waterless technology, where we significantly reduce the amount of water that we use in finishing a pair of jeans. We've saved over three billion liters of water. Um, Project FLX, where we right. finish the jeans using a laser, instead of using chemicals and physical labor, and you'll see it here in a minute, we'll show it to you. It is transformational, revolutionary, and it will change the supply chain over time because we can postpone the finishing of a pair of jeans closer to market. Okay, but at the same time, people don't regard Levi's as that. I've always tried to figure out how does Chipper get the word out that we're a change company, this is what we think about. Given the fact that it's clothes and, you know, my generation says, hey, nice pair of pants. Yeah. Well, I mean, I started by saying I never wash my jeans. And that, <laughs> that was the shot that was heard around the world. And actually what I said was I don't put my jeans in the washing yeah, machine. Right. But, um, no, we, we do have a really, really strong sustainability story to tell. And we are going on a large storytelling campaign right. on, on sustainability because it is... In today's world, the young consumers really do care about it. I like oh, to say we are the opposite of fast fashion. We are yes. slow fashion. Yes. We never go out of style. You know, a pair of 501s is never going to go out right. of style. So we are the ultimate in slow fashion. In the meantime, Chip Burgers also has to be the chairman of a company that is under assault right now. I know that these are things that you can't really talk about, but can you balance the time, particularly because I know you're so pro-shareholder, you have to be pro-shareholder in that room and here. The great news about HP is it is an amazing board of directors. And, uh, and there are several people on the board who can step up and help carry the load, but um, it is obviously taking quite a bit of time, uh, but, uh, but we're in a good place right yeah. now, and we're really focused on doing what is absolutely right for the HP shareholders. Oh, that's great. And I happen to love the new CEO. I was hoping they'd give him a little time to work, <laughs> but I guess he's got a whole new job. Well, Chip, I want to thank you. We're going to look you, around, Jim. but that's Chip Berg, Levi's president and CEO. What an exciting place, an exciting time to work at Levi's. Great. It is. Thank you very much, Jim.
The last time he came out here to San Francisco, this market still was in love with the fast-growing, privately-held unicorns. But we're now in a post-Lyft, Uber, and WeWork world. Fortunately, some were smart enough to take a breath from their plans to come public until the market regains its appetite for these mythical creatures. Take Airbnb. It's one of only two seven-time CBC Disruptor 50 companies. Number seven on 2019 list, now expects to come public in 2020. And get this, it doesn't need the money. So let's dig deep with Brian Chesky. He's the co-founder, CEO, and head of community at Airbnb to learn more about how his business is doing and what it means for an upcoming IPO. Mr. Chesky, welcome to Mad Money. Brian, you're solving a problem again. Yep. Uh, a lot of people want to go to the uh, Japanese Olympics. They're very worried because there's just not enough hotel rooms. Right. You've announced something that's very important, not just for this Olympics, but for many more. Tell us. Yeah, so... Well, Airbnb, we started to provide housing really for events. When a big event comes to town, hotels are usually sold out. People don't have a place to stay. And hotels usually charge two or three times their daily nightly rent. In two, uh, in when we provided the housing for the Olympics in Rio, 85,000 people stayed in the Airbnb home. These are people that may not have gone to the Olympics. And so we announced today are three things. Number one, we have a breakthrough partnership with the Olympics from now through 2028. That's five Olympic Games. Where we're going to be the official housing provider for the Olympics. So you can now stay with a local when you're going to the Olympics. The number two thing is that now Olympic athletes can be Olympic experience hosts on Airbnb because many of them do not have multi-million dollar sponsorships from Nike. So what do they do when their career is over? Hopefully they can be host and still earn income. And the third thing I'm really proud of is the Olympics has a history of allowing countries to compete, but not every person belongs to a country. There are refugees, and they don't get the opportunity to compete. The Olympics has created a refugee Olympic team, and we're a proud sponsor of that team as well. So those are the three things that we're doing. All right, so go back to you said that when you created it. Yeah. Uh, you obviously have taken it to many different levels. Yeah. You bought a company that I love, Hotel Tonight. You have made it so that, uh, and this is an amazing statistic, there was one night, August 10th, over 4 million people spending the night in an Airbnb for a private company. This the is all population of Los Angeles, approximately, were staying in Airbnbs, but they came from 191 countries. This is almost every country in the world, but North Korea, Iran, South Sudan, and Crimea. So it was a really, really big thing. And when we started Airbnb, <clears throat> people thought we were crazy. They said, this will never work. Right. Strangers will never stay with other strangers. But I think what we invented wasn't just a way to book a home. It was really a platform built around trust that allowed millions of people to be able to book a home with another person and trust the accommodations they're getting. And over 500 million guest arrivals later, you start to see what happens. Okay, so how's the technology work? I mean, for instance, yeah. uh, Jeff Lawson was on recently from Twilio. Yes. Uh, and I know he's a great platformer. Uh, you must use so many different technologies oh, to yes. make this thing. Can you just give us a sense of the pastiche? Yeah, so we have um, you know billions of searches every year yeah. on Airbnb, going to over 7 million listings and many experiences. So the first thing we have to do is we had to build a really, really robust platform. This is, Airbnb is not an OTA. We are not just a distributor of online travel company. We're not just a distributor of hotel products. We had to first build a payment system, a payment entity. We handle more currencies than PayPal. And so we have to handle this money through our platform. We have a trust and safety division that verifies people's identity. 
We have 24-7 customer support. We have thousands of unique customer issues that we have to train. This is not like Amazon. The box either didn't come to your house or it did. This is a very, very bespoke platform. We have deep infrastructure. Even our ranking team that does search technology trying to be able to help you find one of 100,000 homes in Paris. This is a pretty difficult problem. So it's a pretty robust platform, and I think the sophistication of it hopefully allows more people to participate. Like many pioneers who have arrows at your back, I meet people who run hotel companies. They're saying that you're hurting their margins. I'll see hear about a town that doesn't want to have Airbnb yeah. in it. I'll also hear, hey, listen, they could be the next WeWork, Jim. Don't fall in love with them. How do you respond to those who, frankly, maybe are a degree jealous of what you've accomplished? Well, you know, I think that ultimately the people will speak. And the first thing is, do customers love this product? The vast majority of people who book on Airbnb leave a review, 70%. And the vast majority of them love the experience. I've seen you on the show talking about your experience. Absolutely. So number one, we're going to first live and die by our customers, as all companies do. And I ultimately think the customers should choose which companies survive and not survive. The second thing is that our hosts have earned over $80 billion on our platform. And 50% of them are women. And one of the top professions of our hosts are school teachers. So, like, school it's just teachers. regular people mostly doing, this, doing these activities. And ultimately, we've tried to partner with cities. We've had 500 different city partnerships. We collect and remit over a billion and a half dollars of hotel tax. And so it's really, you know, ultimately, Jim, what I would say is people won't remember Airbnb in 2019. They won't remember, you know, about if and, you know, you know what, like, any if and when we launch which feature, they're going to remember who we are as a company. Did I like that company? Did they provide great experiences? Were people economically empowered? Were communities better off? And hopefully if we do our job well in the coming decades, people will all say that. But let's talk about uh, West versus East. When I'm out here, and I come out here a lot because I... Okay, I want to be younger yeah. than I am. This is what happens when I come out here. Yeah. Out west, you're talking about solving problems. Right. And in the east, you're talking about valuation. Yes. Out west, you're talking about wonder. In the east, you're talking about, is it $40 billion? <laughs> Is it $50 billion? Is it? Yeah. Uh, east does not necessarily have to meet west. Why would you ever want to come public knowing that east is rapacious <laughs> and I think critical of what west has accomplished? Well, I'm from the east coast. I grew up in Albany, New York. My parents, Albany? Uh, my, Albany, New York. My parents are social workers. My dad worked for the state of New York. So I like the East Coast. I'm still thinking of myself as kind of an East Coaster. I don't think these things are mutually exclusive. Okay. I don't think you can, you either have to be highly profitable or you have a change the world nonprofit. Like you can actually make money um, and you can actually like serve Wall Street and serve your customers and, and like, serve the refugees and serve the refugees and serve communities and do really interesting things. I think that like there, I don't think we need to live in this world where there's either like it, it's it's it, it's one or the other. Okay. Like these two things can fit together. At the same time, we know that, for instance, an outfit like WeWork yep. comes public and it's looking like it's 50, then 40, then 30, yep. and then not. How do you avoid the WeWork situation? Well, the first thing you should do is make sure that, um, you know, like you have a business that's fundamentals are really strong. <laughs> that really well, you matters. Have, you make and so money. When you publish your S1, it's really important <laughs> that your numbers make sense. In our business, um, we have more money in the bank than we've raised. Right. That's a really important right. thing. I think a question you should always ask people is, how much money did you burn to build your valuation? Right. And if you divide those two numbers, that's a really important thing. And so I think fundamentally, when we put out our numbers, hopefully people will feel really good about what we built with what we raised and what we actually spent. But I think ultimately, like, we're not going to live and die by the things we say. We're going to live and die by the things we do and the numbers and the results we put out quarter after quarter, year after year. Now, does it make sense then uh, to wait? 
uh, uh, you're making, you have more money in the yeah. bank. And uh, is there something that uh, are investors anxious to have a, a, a market? Because yeah. I know that you guys have done a lot more to protect yeah. buyers of it ultimately than these sellers. Yeah. Or is it just yeah, it's time to have a currency? <clears throat> well, most people that are really rushing to go public, the number one reason they do is because they need the money. Right. We don't need to right. raise money. And so we haven't been in a rush. And number two, most of our large shareholders, most of our large investors have told us they intended to hold the stock for a long time, and they actually were doing the opposite of pressuring us to go public. They were making sure, take your time, make sure you institutionalize your intentions, because obviously it is an intense world on Wall Street, and make sure that you institutionalize the things you're doing, try to start new businesses, get them going, and then find the right timing. We think next year will be the right time for us. Okay. Uh, And with a broker or direct listing, what do you think um, we're not ready to announce yeah. anything, okay. but you know the number one reason that people do a traditional IPO is they need the money. Right. We don't need no. the money. One last question, Brian. As someone who's in the hospitality yeah. business, I worry all the time about fighting. I worry all the time about accidents. I worry all the time about something really bad happening. Right. You've had some experiences like I've had, like yeah. anyone in our business had. How do you create a safety net to make it so that as best as you can, people who use your product don't get hurt? <clears throat> so when we started Airbnb... The first thing we did is make sure we have a payment system and a reputation system. Okay. Everyone leaves a review, both sides, and these are authenticated reviews based on a, based on a reservation. Then we provided a number of new protections. Last week, for example, we made our biggest announcement in the history of our company since we founded in our platform of trust. You see, ultimately, we're in the business not of sharing a home, but we're in the business of trust. And what we're doing with that business is now we're going to verify 100% of the listings on Airbnb. We're going to verify for accuracy and for basically hospitality standards. No internet platform with hundreds of millions of users has attempted, I don't think, to verify all the veracity of their information. But I think ultimately we in the tech industry are realizing we have greater responsibility and we need to actually take more responsibility for what's on our platform. You're dead right. You're dead right. You're doing it right. Okay, that's Brian Chesky. He's the co-founder, CEO, and head of community at Airbnb. Thank you, Brian. Thank you, Tim. Good to talk to you. you. Calls rapid fire. One of these hit this in. I said, Bye, bye, bye. Bye, bye, Sell, sell, sell. Sell, sell, sell. And then the lightning round is over. Are you ready, Ski Daddy? Time for the lightning round. Remember to start with Joe in North Carolina. Joe. Yes, thank you for your sage advice. It's helped me to start my retirement at a younger age, and I was interested in uh, information that you might have on GW Pharmaceuticals. Okay, we like GW Pharma, but we've said it's part of the cannabis cohort. And because of that, it's being pulled down by a lot of ETFs, and therefore it is still too early. Let's go to Sue in New York. Sue. Hi, Jim. I'm a first-time caller, long-time listener, huge fan. Thank you. Um, I was, oh, I love you. Um, so I was listening to CNBC last month, and I happened to catch an interview with Dr. Athena Contoriotis or something from Turning Point Therapeutics, TP. Okay, Turning Point Therapeutics is a very big speculative situation. Most people wouldn't know the difference between Turning Point Therapeutics and Turning Point Wine, so you got to do some homework on it before you pull the trigger. Let's go to Adam, Pennsylvania. Adam. Hey, Adam. Hey, Jim. This is uh, Adam from Philly. I, uh, I have a question on uh, an oil and gas pipeline company, MPLX. Yeah, no, no, the oil and gas pipeline companies are awful. These are all these teams that are never, ever going to make the playoffs. I don't want you to get near. Let's go to Owen in Hawaii. Owen. Hey, booyah, Jim. This is uh, uh, 
concerning Uridium Communication. We've liked Uridium. I think it's got a great business model, very niche business, a low Earth orbits, and I'm going to tell you to... Bye, bye, bye! Okay, how about Jim in Florida? Jim! Hey, Jim, you're the best. Thanks for all you do for us. Can I please... welcome. Capital Corp, P-S-E-C. Thank you. No, no, no. This is another one of those companies we just don't know what's inside it. It's got all sorts of debt that we just don't want to be able to understand. So we're not going to touch it. And that, ladies and gentlemen, of the Lightning Round! The Lightning Round is sponsored by TD Ameritrade. Spending months getting beaten to a pulp, the cloud stocks have made a major comeback over the last few weeks, particularly today. Look at Zendesk. That's the software as a service company that helps other businesses handle customer support. It's a platform. After a tough run, the company reported a solidly better than expected quarter last month, and the stocks come roaring back to 77 as of today. So let's check in with Mikkel Svein. He is the co-founder, chairman, and CEO of Zendesk. Mr. Svein, welcome back to Mad Money. Nickel, it's been a little bit of time since we've seen you last, and you are now closing in on a billion dollars in sales. Magic number for us, because we always identify companies that are at that level that are great buys. Yep, yep. We are very ambitious about 2020. We expect to, or we have ambitions about a billion dollar revenue number, and, you know, we're excited uh, about uh, running fast into 2020. Now, you are starting, you have clients gigantic clients. We had a company called Data Dog on yeah. last week, yeah. and we thought they were incredibly impressive. And it, it, it's very clear that they can get you the data that you want to grow with. What, yeah. Now, if I were to call that, when would I intersect with Zendesk if I hired Data Dog? <laughs> so we work with uh, Datadog. I know Olivier. He's a fantastic oh, guy. Oh, he's good, isn't he? Yeah, I should take him to your Italian restaurant in uh, Brooklyn. Uh, <laughs> no, but it's, a, it's an amazing company. We started working with them a few years ago. They use our software. We're a big consumer of their software. And we believe very much in kind of to truly understand your customers, you have to have your customer data flow really, really elegantly. Right. So how we think about Datadog, how we work with AWS, and getting, cust- uh, getting our... Amazon Web Services. Exactly. Getting our customers, businesses to understand their customers be- better based on data is, is key to how we operate. Now, do you have partners? Because when you see... I see Netflix as one of your customers. And, yep. uh, I've called Net- Netflix customer service. Right before I saw Reed Hastings, I called it 3 a.m. in various places... 3M. Someone picked up, someone knew everything, and then someone knew everything about me. Where are you in that chain? So we work with, uh, we primarily work with Netflix on all their production. So that means that every production they have, all the partners that they have, all the different vendors, all the, all the constituents in their whole production element is tied together and used, are using Zendesk. So we currently don't are too deeply involved in the external facing customer oh, service, but that's a big part of uh, you know the dialogue. So, but would, a, would you with a Harry's? Because I use Harry's. Is that <laughs> you? I mean, I, you know, I've spoken to one of your sales, but I'm trying to figure out. I mean, Harry's is a pretty well run outfit, and they must rely on you to do something with that makes yeah. it so that they have that kind of friendly customer service. Exactly. Like we believe tremendously in the future of all these direct to consumer businesses, right. and like we believe that is the future model. So we work with a lot of them, including Harry's. And, and so many others. How much of it is just you advising them, giving them a business plan, telling oh. them that this is how you need to do it? No, we don't do that. <laughs> they they got to hire you. We are a software company, and that's what we do. Well, I, I've got to tell you, 
when I see uh, what Wall Street is saying, you know, the stock was down and people are saying, well, listen, you got to ask them. There's been some potential softness in international. Now, I, I always am reluctant to ever say there's softness when a guy's about to hit a billion dollars, because I know that <laughs> so few hit a billion dollars. But I do want to address it because the stock had, had a tough summer. Well, so we we did that a few quarters ago where we talked about some of the unevenness in our execution internationally. Mm -hmm. Remember, we are a very internationally oriented company. We have half our business outside the U.S., uh, which is fantastic. You know, it makes us very resilient, et cetera, et cetera. And that also means that we can continue to grow at a very high rate. We grew 36% last quarter. And you should say that but, means in the number of customers, too. Remember, you're yeah. 200,000. 200, we probably have a much bigger number than even that one, customers. Yeah. We have a lot of customers. We have a lot of customers internationally, too. But we also, like, we're growing so rapidly that actually covering such large regions with the account, with the amount of kind of executives and, and team that we have internationally, we can do better. And we've seen some unevenness in our execution, mm-hmm. and we're very determined on kind of getting that back on track again. And just in that, there's tremendous leverage for our future growth. Talk to me about Gather and Sunshine, because I don't know whether either one of those were really uh, rolling out when we spoke to you last. (laughs) So Sunshine, we've been talking about Sunshine for about a year now. And Sunshine is a new CRM platform that helps businesses connect all their data, connect all their applications. And it lives natively in AWS. It's very easy for developers. We think about it almost as kind of open source. So if I'm a developer, I I hire you? What do I do? No, it's a platform that we enable for developers. Okay, so it's like Twilio, where you right on our Salesforce. Yeah, we just it's just it lives natively in AWS and it it's very targeted towards CX, so customer experience and customer relationship. And we provide all these tools that make it very easy for businesses to deploy all the things and connect all their things and all that data with Sendesk and with other applications. And we really truly believe that that's the future of thinking about customer relationship and customer experience. Well, I'm glad you explained that. I know a lot of people just say, Jim, Zendesk, you bring these companies up, they're like, they don't really do anything. I said, no, they're why companies stay in business for heaven's sake. You just don't need them because they tend to be a little bit bigger than uh, one restaurant or one hotel. We have a lot of small businesses and our customers, and we are very proud of them, too. Well, I know as someone who (laughs) who checked in with your organization, you're absolutely right. That's Mikkel Svein. He is the chairman and CEO of Zendesk. I know I brought this company to you before. Why? Because this is how modern-day business is run. May have money's back after the break. All right, here's one I haven't talked about in quite a long time, which is Mattel. Now, I've been avoiding this stock perhaps, I don't know, like 25, 30 points. But they have just priced a debt deal that had tremendous demand. That is a very good sign for the common stock. Got to take a look at it, maybe a little early, but I'm all over it. I like to say there's always a bull market summer. Promise try to find it just for you right here on Mad Money. I'm Jim Cramer, and I will see you tomorrow. Some bonds last a lifetime. Some bonds inspire confidence. And some you grow to rely on. These are the bonds worth investing in. For nearly 50 years, PIMCO has reinvented fixed income to create opportunities for investors in every market environment. So no matter what happens, you can build the bonds that mean the most to you. PIMCO, a global leader in active fixed income. Learn more at PIMCO.com bonds. All investments contain risk and may lose value. Consult your investment professional before investing.